listening to the Taming Hinges podcast. Conversations about self-awareness and mental health. We talk about anything and everything on the podcast. Real experiences, real life. Come get triggered. Welcome to another episode of the Taming Hindrances Podcast. As always, my name's Phil. I'm the host and creator of the podcast. And today's episode is about death. I've talked about a bunch of different things in this podcast, and all of it has to do with self-awareness, mental health, changing the connotation on depression. And sometimes I think one of the best ways to go about understanding ourselves is really to go about understanding how we feel about certain things and not just, you know, the little things, but some of the big things too, you know, sometimes it's important to know how we feel about different foods we eat or our health and those types of things. And then there's the big topics. And one of those big topics is death itself and how we feel about it. What do we think about it? What we believe about death. And I often find when I talk to people, specifically on the topic of death, there's there's all sorts of different beliefs about death. And there's also this kind of stigma. And sometimes that depends on who I talk to, you know, people from other cultures, you know, me being an American, there's not that stigma. And I, I tend to like to talk to, to other cultures about death because they have a different take than maybe what we grew up with or, you know, what we see in modern American society. Or... In English society, I should say, you know, in most of the English-speaking world, there's this stigma about death. And it wasn't always like that. And I would say that with a little bit more open conversation, maybe there wouldn't be this stigma about death. There could be an open conversation about it. And I'm not saying I'm the one to start that, but I do want to cover the topic of death because I think it's an important topic to not only just self-awareness, but just personal ideology, personal belief structures. Um, well, I guess, I mean, that all just kind of wrap up into self-awareness. But I think also to understand the conversation of mental health, because when we talk about death in the mental health world, the connotation always leans towards suicide and the danger of, you know, even talking about death, the stigma that goes behind that, because it could trigger someone, right? Well, on this podcast, I'm all about triggering people because if you're going to get triggered over something, I personally believe you're just not, you're just not informed on it. You don't, you don't know enough about it yet. You don't have a, a solid mental grasp on the situation and that there should be more research and there should be more conversation there. We shouldn't shy away from these things just because we're worried about triggering someone. We shouldn't not talk about death because we're worried about what someone might think or what that might do to their mental state. I can tell you from anecdotal experience, most people who you quote unquote consider morbid, they're thinking about death all the time. People who are like myself, who've, you know, I've gone through active suicidal states, I've gone through passive suicidal states. I would consider myself not at risk of suicide anymore, as I've talked about on this podcast, because of my own personal beliefs, which I'll get into in this this episode. But mostly, I still consider myself suicidal, though. It's not like it just went away. Like, 
I still don't care if I die. I still am very okay with the idea of dying. I'm just not actively seeking the action of suicide because it, it won't benefit me in any way at this point. So someone who is suicidal or, and again, remember, I don't, I don't aim to speak for everyone else. Your depression is your depression. Your viewpoints are your viewpoints. Everyone's, everyone's different. What I am anecdotally saying is that those individuals I've spoken to who shared similar mental states that I have or mental opinions on the idea of suicide, actively seeking, passively seeking, just generally okay with it. They're thinking about death all the time. It's, it's not like a, it's not like this just like pops up once a year when someone else dies or when someone brings it into conversation. No, myself and individuals included in this conversation are thinking about it regularly. They're rationalizing the idea. They're weighing the options, finding a methodology behind it, maybe looking for personal beliefs thereon. All sorts of different conversations are going through their head when it comes to death. So shying away from the subject is not really helping. Actuality of it, when you shy away from the conversation of death, you're almost kind of degrading the thought process thereof. You're almost kind of getting into a world where you're saying like, oh, you shouldn't be thinking about these things. That's not okay. It's not okay to be morbid in any way. Of course it's okay to be morbid. You can be where the fuck you want to be. Individuals who lean towards a morbid perspective, I'm not saying don't pay attention to them, but don't shun them for it. You know, some people are just more okay with death, more connected to those ideas, you know, the people who collect, you know, animal skulls and bones and stuff. And just, these aren't weird people. These are just people who have a general, I don't know, understanding thereof or a pull towards death. I've met all sorts of people that seem what we quote unquote can seem very normal, but have a, a fascination with or an obsession with death. You know, it's, it's less... It's less weird in other cultures than it is here. Again, I, my perspective comes from the United States of America, but in other cultures, in other countries, just in, you know, even well, actually even here, if you look at the Native American population, the real Americans, their ideology and their belief structures when it comes to death are vastly different than what we see in modern American culture. And again, the shying away from, that doesn't exist there. It's, it's a reverence thing. It's a very important topic in most historical cultures to talk about or understand death. And with the American culture or the English-speaking culture that I know, there is, death goes along with religion. That's kind of the, that's kind of the cultural take is we've kind of added death into that religion because it's part of the belief structure of, you know, what happens after death? And I get that. That's fine. Everyone's entitled to their own beliefs. I'm all about that. That being said, it, in my eyes, should be separated. Your beliefs on death could be completely different than your religious beliefs. I've seen that. I've heard that. I've had that experience in my life. So I think lumping the whole death conversation into a religious conversation is not really true. It's not really what we should be doing with it. Death is a multifaceted idea. 
it's a it's a multi-topic discussion. It, it covers religion, it covers beliefs, it covers the language and the education and emotional states. It's everything I've talked about in you know the first fourteen episodes of the podcast, talking about you know what builds our reality, what builds our identity. Death is a big topic in all of those things. So today I wanted to cover death as a as a topic, as a discussion, as a you know, and I'll get into my own personal beliefs just to share them, but to cover some other ones, I talk about philosophy a lot, and I talk about the Stoics a lot because I, I find myself to lean towards Stoic nature, and I find that Stoicism is a good way to start into philosophy when it comes to self-awareness because it, it, it teaches some pretty solid things to work with. That being said, the Stoic ideas on death um, are are pretty much summed up in the in the idea of memento mori. Uh, memento uh, would be Latin for remember or uh, memory thereof, and then mori is death. Um, so memento mori, you can translate it however you want, but really it's remembrance of death. And you have to remember, when we talk about these types of things stoically, it's not necessarily a... It's, it's, there's multiple folds of the way you can take these statements. So memento mori for a Stoic is not just remember death. It's a keep in mind death. It's, it's going to happen. You know, everyone dies. It's a thing that happens. Don't just let it, you know, be, uh, don't let it surprise you. Don't let it, you know, don't let it rule you. Don't suffer there because of it. It's a, it's a, I hate to say, you know, live, let live, but it's almost a live, let live idea with death. Like that's how a stoic would go about looking at death is it's going to get everybody right. Everyone dies. And a stoic will also take the position of whatever you believe about death is what's going to happen for you when you die. Whatever I believe about it's, it's a personal thing that deals with multiple aspects of it. What happens when we die? Oh no, someone died. I'm, you know, dying. The Stoic is just uh, kind of a, okay, death, death happens. It's just, you know, part of life. And without death, there would be no life to a Stoic in some ways. So that's, you know, the Stoic idea on it. Um, another one to cover, and I'm not doing any, these in any order because there's a lot of them to cover, but we see death discussed in all major religions, just about all religion in general. Um, in some ways, religions, in my personal opinion, came about to decipher how to live and how to die because it answers universal. One of the universal questions of humanity from the onset was, what is this thing of death and what happens afterwards? Why is it so tragic to some and so not tragic to others. It's a, you know, philosophical ideas. That's why, I, you know, I say death is a, it's a just a multifaceted uh, topic. So let's get into another one. Um, so you have Buddhism and Hinduism. They, um, they have interesting ideas on death simply because death's not an end result. So there's physical death. Now you have to remember in any of these topics that I cover when I get to my own personal beliefs, but also in historical record, 
a lot of ancient thinking, like in Buddhism, uh, even some of the Stoics, and just about all major uh, medical dealings, specifically with like alchemical processes, in ancient culture, there's more than just the body. There was always more. And I, I talked about this in the depression episode about how there's more to just the physical form. The physical form is just a, it's, an, it's animus. It's uh, the material, but there's also archaeus. There's also other, there's the spiritual body, the energy body, the upper level bodies, whatever you want to call it. There's more to health than just the physical form. And then the mental is the translation between the two. So when we talk about in Buddhism, uh, something like moksha, moksha is representation of, of liberation or release therefrom. And it's released from uh, dukkha or I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I apologize. Or samsara. And dukkha is suffering. Samsara is the world or, you know, it's encompassing those, the whole world. So it's released from that. So specifically when we talk about moksha, we talk about release from samsara, from release from the world, but release from one of the worlds of the worlds, because there's multiple tiers here. And that's the physical life. We're just released from the physical life. So in Buddhism, we talk about moksha when it comes to death. And it's, it's, a, it's a liberation. It's a release. It's... Oh, I don't have to suffer this mortal coil anymore. That's kind of how the, the Buddhist canon writes about death. Now, there's multiple different forms of Buddhism, and Hinduism is the belief of the Hindu people. So their own belief structures go into how they deal with things, and they get into what we see as a religious practice. But again, it's, it's isms, Hinduism, way of the Hindu people. They have their own burial rites and all these other things. And a lot of these different systems do. One of those, we have uh, Zen Buddhism. And in Zen Buddhism, we talk about Satori a lot. And Satori, I'm going to wax poetically here for a second. I apologize. But in Satori, a lot of people say like, oh, you know, Zen Buddhism is all about attaining Satori. Well, Satori is unattainable. It's, it's impossible for you to attain because Satori is spontaneous enlightenment and enlightenment by definition in Zen Buddhism is death, death of something. We like to say it's death of the ego, death of the, those things. That's, that's not the reality of it. Um, Satori is specifically spontaneous enlightenment and it's near impossible for someone to spontaneously enlighten themselves because you have to think about it being spontaneous for it to be spontaneous and thus thinking about it makes it not spontaneous. So it's impossible for an individual to attain Satori in their own methods. There's no way to plan your own Satori. Satori is an outside influence that creates enlightenment. The old Zen masters used to use multiple different methods to create a spontaneous enlightenment or Satori in their student population. A couple great examples of that, or if someone were to be walking in or out of a doorway, the Zen master might scream their name at the top of their lungs as loud as they could possibly do it and make some other loud noise also at some cases. And they would do it just as they're traveling through the, the precipice 
of the doorway because in Zen Buddhism, we consider doorways to be almost like portals, but it's a, a switch over of the mind. Um, it's when you travel through a doorway, you're leaving one mental state behind and, and creating a new mental state as you travel through the doorway. So that moment, right as you pass through the doorway, they would try to create spontaneous enlightenment by doing something, sometimes screaming their name, making a loud noise. Or um, most, most old school Zen teachers historically were very cantankerous. And another method they would use is during a, a long meditation period where they would have a, maybe a group meditation, or even if they were just sitting with an individual student and that student was meditating, they may leave like very quietly as to not be heard or seen. And then as they were leaving and they would do this either leaving or not leaving, they might just sit there and do it, but they would take two wooden uh, blocks and they would smack them together and make a really loud sound. Some masters are even noted as doing it directly behind the person meditating at a certain interval in their meditation where they knew they would be very, you know, focused on their inward meditation and they would go right behind them and clack two wooden um, sticks together to make a, a super loud noise to create Satori, create spontaneous enlightenment. So part of the methodology of learning to be a Zen master or a Zen teacher was the idea of it was your job to create Satori in your students. And if you could get someone else to attain Satori, it was almost a reverent idea that you could create Satori in someone else. You could create spontaneous enlightenment. Now, keeping in mind, in, in Buddhism, um, there is no point to death. It is simply an end state. So when we talk about Satori, it's that spontaneous enlightenment or sudden enlightenment. To attain that would be death. But death is pointless unless you've done something here now in this physical mortal suffering to advance your consciousness or advance, quote unquote, your soul. So we can come back to that later, but that's, that's how Zen went about their ideas of death and living. And it, it goes to the greater whole of Buddhism, um, specifically in the idea that like it, death doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's just a, it's just another, it's like a, a flag in the sand. It's a, just a marker. Uh, it's, it's a measurement system. And that, you know, your death is technically enlightenment. Enlightenment is death. You've enlightened yourself of the physical mortal body. Now, remember, there's multiple enlightenments, though. So death is kind of one of those things where it's just a, to specifically the Zen Buddhist or Buddhism as a whole, death is a, it's a, a dying of something. And it doesn't have to necessarily be the physical form. That's just another one of the deaths. That's how they look at it. So one way to go a little bit deeper in this, if we look at spiritual Buddhism, we look at Shinto. Um, Shinto Buddhism, which is, uh, I think still is, or at least was in the past, the national religion of Japan. In Shinto Buddhism, we have these things known as the kami. Kami are a spirit. It's, it's, but everything has kami. It's, a, it's almost like an energy. Um, and 
when you die, your physical form, your kami leaves it. In Shinto Buddhism, the death of the body allows for the kami to leave the body and go to the other world or the, the world of kami. It's the spirit world, essentially. And from that spirit world, the kami watch over the this life. They watch over this mortal. They watch over much more than that, but they watch over this, you know, mortal life or this, this material life. And because that's how it is dealt in Shinto Buddhism, everything has kami. So like a tree has kami, the earth has kami, everything has a spirit. And when our spirits leave the body, they go to the spirit world and thus they can interact with the other spirits, gain more knowledge and an idea and attunement. Um, and also at the same time, watch over the, the, the physical world they just left. So in Shinto Buddhism, you'll often find that graves are reverent points. Um, it's often a respect point to go to a grave, light incense. Uh, there's a certain day every year. That's kind of the day of not mourning, but like day of reverence for the dead. Those still watching over us. We appreciate their time. And those things. That's what you'll, you'll find um, in Shinto Buddhism. They keep an altar in the home of the family members that have passed away, specifically like grandparents and those things, because they're, it's a place for the, that kami to come and watch over them. So death is, um, it's, it's just another, it's a, it's a, it's just a gateway. essentially. it's okay. Your spirit has left the body and now that spirit will watch over the family. will watch over the spirit world and do in some Shinto Buddha and like very old Shinto Buddhism, it's where your true work begins, where when your kami leaves your physical mortal body, it goes to do its true work, which is to work in the spirit realm. And it's what keeps earth doing the things earth needs to do. It's what keeps the cosmos doing the things the cosmos need to do. And these altars or um, burial places are places where the spirit can come back to, to watch over or commune with the living. So that's Shinto Buddhism, Buddhism as a whole. Let's go into let's go into some of the religions because, again, I believe religion is uh, in some ways designed to explain what happens when we die. And I remember I'm not for organized religion. I don't believe you need to go to a church or a synagogue or a mosque to worship. I I'm okay with you can believe whatever you can believe whatever you want to believe. It doesn't bother me any bit. I just don't like the idea of, of these things becoming full systems that become organizations because the organization is corruptible. Your beliefs can be corruptible, but you're in charge of them. The organization, you don't need that to have beliefs. It's not required. In no religion at any point in time are you required to be a part of the organization to have the beliefs. That's just my own personal opinion on it. I'm sure somebody would yell at me about that, but I really don't care. Let's look at Islam. Um, so in Islam, when you die now in Islam, there's, there's not a whole lot of talk about like there's talk about heaven and hell, but it's kind of difficult because Islam talks about heaven and hell. It also talks about the long sleep or the in between. So what happens after death 
the afterlife in Islam um, is kind of up in the air as far as what every piece of Islam believes. Now, again, you have multiple belief structures in all of these different religions. Like, you know, in Christianity, we have all the different sects of Christianity and like, you know, the Protestants and the Catholics and the, so you have, you know, you have all those different belief structures and different interpretations is really the best way to think about it. These are all different interpretations. In the Quran, though, it does talk about heaven and hell. And it talks about the soul specifically and the soul either going to heaven or hell. It doesn't really necessarily talk about where that heaven or hell is. It talks about what might happen to someone in that heaven or hell. Uh, and it, it, there's also mention of like the long sleep or the in-between. So as far as reincarnation and those types of things, what happens to the soul afterwards, not really discussed too much. But specifically, um, there's talk of an angel. Now, in old school traditional Islam, there's one. In newer understandings, there's two angels. Uh, in old school Islam, I was taught uh, Malak al-Malak, Malak al-Malak, Malak al-Mat. Sorry, I apologize. My translation and um, vernacular for all this is very old, and I can't remember it all that well. But it's, I believe it's Malak al-Mat is the angel of death. Specifically, that's the angel of death. Now, when we talk about angels. There is crossover in all of what I consider the pantheons of angels. So keep that in mind when we talk about Judaism, Christianity, uh, and all of these things. But specifically in Islam, there's uh, Malak al-Mat, who that's the angel of death. And it's um, that would be the, the one that would come to carry the soul, literally remove the soul from the body. And it's talked about in old school Islam in the Quran that Malak al-Mat, the way you lived your life was the was going to decipher how that angel of death took your soul. They could rip it from if you were a horrible person. They would tear it from you in agonizing pain and do it very slow. They would rip your soul from your body. Or they'd be very gentle with it and they would carry it uh, to the afterlife. That in newer... Um, translation or uh, you know whatever you want to call it there's uh, mankara and nakir and mankara and nakir are the angels of um essentially it's uh denial and, and and denied so they would come to the soul and ask hey here's a set of like they would essentially question the soul or the, the individual on their faith were you a true islam believer you know did you who was your prophet who is God, those types of things. And depending on the answers, you would either go to heaven or you would suffer in hell. That's kind of how it was taught to me when I learned it. Please, again, take everything I say with a grain of salt and all this stuff. There's so many interpretations out there. These are just the ones I've been given over the years. So, uh, But I think it's important to understand like what other people see things and how they believe things and what their ideas on death are because it, it changes how we interact on that level. So that's, that's my understanding of how uh, Islam goes about their understanding of death. Christianity, I think is, is more of a well-known one and everyone has their own different ideas on it, but um, there's heaven and hell, but specifically in Christianity, if we look at scripture and we look at the way it can be perceived 
death is an, is an exaltation of God. It's to be exalted of Christ. Um, so when a Christian dies, they're exalting God. They're, they're essentially death is like an okay thing. Like when you die, like you're exalting your Christ, that's what you're doing. And it's a freeing of or a traveling home. So in the Christian scriptures, it's often written about like going home to the Lord, going to the, the kingdom of the Lord, like going home, having a home. And there's all sorts of different beliefs on what happens in heaven and what happens in hell. And there's belief in like layers of hell and there's belief in, you know, ideas of heaven. That's all up in the air. I'm not going to get into that conversation. There's a ton there to unpack, but that's what they believe in. They believe in the soul is there's a couple ways to think about this. The soul goes home to the Lord, their Lord, and is an exaltation of them in that into Christ by dying. Um, or there's the rapture and all that's again, there's a lot to unpack here, but there's an understanding of heaven and hell. There is death is an okay thing in Christianity. Um, you know, they have burial practices and all those things, but it's in the scripture wise, death is just, it's just part of, you know, you're supposed to live for the Lord and you are exalted in death to Christ. So you, if you lived for Christ, you exalt yourself by dying. You're like, Oh, I'm going home now. That's kind of how they think about it. Again, different understandings different ways of translating the, just the translations of the different versions of the Bible throughout the years. It's all kind of wishy-washy, unfortunately, um, in my viewpoint. So stepping away from the big uh, Abrahamic religions, let's look at Jainism for a second. Uh, Jainism is one of the original religions, or I believe it is the original, original religion of India. And Jainism talks extensively on death. Oh, there's so much in Jainism to unpack when it comes to how they talk about, there's just so much. They talk about Dharma and they talk about karma and the reincarnation process, how to live one life to better the next or how to make up for past lives that have gone awry. So much there to look at. It's a fascinating, fascinating talk on the whole reincarnation process. Um, the idea of the soul versus the body versus the mind and how soul is immortal consciousness can be, there's so much there. If you ever wanted to look into people who want to understand karma and Dharma really should look at Jainism. That's, that's the original kind of understanding of all of it and, and going through the Sanskrit texts and in Jainism, this the extent in which they talk about death and there's like 13 different types of death. It might be more than that, but I believe there's 13 major different types of death, you know, and how one should live for death in some cases and to prepare oneself for death is a lifelong experience. There's so much there that I highly recommend just looking at Jainism in those talks because it, Jainism really, I, I've never seen a religion talk so much about death. Like from the very beginning of, you know, through all the Sanskrit texts and everything and the canonical writings, Jainism talks about death. 
and it, it talks about it so much that it just becomes like another right. It's just, uh, yeah, it's death. Like it's, it's part of the process. Like without death, you cannot have all of these other cycles, the dharmic cycle of, you know, this life and it's dharma. And then the karmic cycle cycle of multiple lives and the, the immortality of the soul cannot in, even engage itself without there being a death of the mortal body of the mortal coil so that it can go to its rest period to have its understanding of what happened in that life to prepare itself for the next life. And just these super huge cycles of like the 23,000, 23,000, don't quote me on the numbers. Um, but like this 20,000 plus year cycle, 22 or 23,000. And then like the shorter cycles of like 2160, uh, or 2160 years. And like just these cycles and deaths and cycles, it's all cyclical. Jainism talks about the cyclical idea and death is necessary for that. Without death, there could not be life. It almost starts with death to have the cyclical idea. And I talk about this some when I talk about the primordials of creation and destruction and chaos and order. Jainism gets into some of that. And again, a lot of conversation in Jainism revolves around the idea of death and how it's, it's just another part of the cycle. And it's a super important part of the cycle. You know, the death and how one dies is a part of the karmic cycle. So highly recommend looking into Jainism for simply just to see that perspective on it. It's fascinating. We'll step back to the Abrahamic religions. Make sure we cover the big three here. Uh, we have Judaism. And I always apologize when, it, when I talk about Judaism because it's been a really long time since I've had a conversation um, in-depthly about it specifically when I was taught everything that I was taught about it. And I was taught as an outsider, so I don't have a full understanding, nor do I have, um, I have some Kabbalic background. I would not consider myself Kabbalistic, but I have studied it. In Judaism, how I was taught it, and I don't have the correct terminology for it, but I will, uh, I will fudge some of it here and get, get through some of the teachings of it. Um, life is valuable above all else. When we look at the Talmud, life is from one source. So every life is a sacred piece of source and source itself. So to take a life is to destroy a whole world and to save a life is to save a whole world. Every life is a world. It's sacred. It's part of, it's part of the Sephiroth. It's part of the the, the tree. It's, it's part of everything and is everything. So in Judaism, again, life is super sacred. Like living is super sacred and to live correctly is the ultimate idea to, to live correctly. And their ideas on death is it's, it's part of, it's part of it. It's, it's a natural process. Dying is without the, without the action of dying, there's no, no revelation of the importance of death, of the, the necessity of, of, of living is, is to culminate to a death. And so the practices in Judaism, when we talk about when someone dies, are they themselves super important? It, it's a, again, I'm an outsider, but I've, I've been um, 
been to, again, on the outside, what's considered um, watching people sit, sit Shiva. Uh, Shiva is the sacred seven. It's the, it's the seven day mourning process at the very beginning for a, um, uh, when a family sits Shiva, it's because a member, a, a close member of the family. So a, like a father, mother, they, they sit Shiva, the immediate family sit Shiva seven days to mourn the passing of that individual. And there's so much that goes into the process of mourning and the burial in Judaism. And there, again, there's different parts of Judaism. There's, there's old school Judaism. There's newer uh, understandings. There's, you know, reformed and traditional. So they're all a little different, but what I was shown the way the Judaic community, it really is just like a communal thing, goes about the process of death is, it's beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. To, and I was fortunate to have been a part of, um, again, as an outsider. But even then, you know, I didn't enter the home because that's, this was a very traditional uh, community that I was slightly involved with. They were, I was being taught Judaism by them, um, by an individual who, uh, they had a family member, a slightly removed family member that passed away. And I just happened to know that person. So I was allowed, I went to, um, some of the practices because as an outsider, you're allowed to be a part of some of the things, but not all the things. Um, I was at the home while the family was sitting Shiva but I was, I, I didn't enter the home because that was a little bit, I'm not going to get into all of it, but didn't enter the home, but I knew they were sitting Shiva and uh, it was on the seventh day that I was there. But then the day after is when I went and, you know, there's kind of like a feast. It's kind of like, like there's eating and like when I was go, when I was seeing all this and being taught some of this uh, as a, just a quick sidebar. I was working in the restaurant industry and when I saw this, I was at that time at a, a country club where like we would do banquets for funerals and it really drove home the importance to me in that industry at that point in time of like the idea of food and how it's one of the only ways an outside influence can be in some way a comfort to someone who's mourning. So it gave me this, I don't know. I don't want to call it like um, a feeling of not import, but like that. Oh, maybe you are being slightly helpful when you're, you know, a banquet staff member providing a banquet to a mourning family or community in that sense. But why I mentioned that is because the process of a funeral, you know, as we, we kind of see it, um, specifically in like Christian communities and those things like there's so much to the mourning process in Judaism that like right off the bat, the, the body of the deceased is like, that's exaltation, you know, where a Christian death might be exalting to God. The Judaistic community exalts the body of the person who passed away. There is a, a set of people and I'm, I'm not going to try to get into all the, uh, names, but I, I wrote one down cause I kind of remembered it. It's, uh, 
the dead themselves are known as Kavad Hamat. I'm pronouncing that probably incorrectly, but Kavad Hamat. And that is the body of, of the person who's deceased. And that body is protected at all times until the actual burial occurs. So you have people who sit guard, and then there's the people who sit Shiva in, in reverence of the dead. And there's just so much that goes into it because on the other side of a person just having passed away in the, in the Judaic community, they understand and they really put into import. There's a whole community that has just lost someone and those people need to be cared for too. And that's what struck me the most was when I was at that family's home, there was a group outside the home that was like me who didn't really enter the home. But like they brought things and then there's a set of people who stand at the doorway of the house and you pass things to them to go to the family or to go to the slightly removed family that's in another room. And like there was so much food, like everyone brought food. It was crazy. And then on the day that I was actually there, which was actually after the official seven, the first seven days, the, again, the amount of food, the amount of people, like it's just and it's, yes, there's mourning, but like, and sitting, part of sitting Shiva is no speaking. And I, again, take everything I say with a grain of salt, go do your own research, talk to someone in the Judea community, uh, talk to someone who knows about Judaism and learn about these things. Cause it's, it's fascinating and it's amazing and beautiful what they do, not just for the person who passed away, but for the people who are mourning. There's so much present like there's a there's a name for that and I can't remember what it is um for a, a person who's mourning um but there's there's just so so much of a support structure there it, it's it's amazing so that's the the Judaic community and there's again so much more to it but they really just understand death is like it's just another piece and it's a piece where you kind of put like the final you know you you put the final piece into the puzzle. You, you've, by dying, one has officially written the tome of that life. That, and remember, life is so sacred in Judaism that by having that death, you've. It's I, I don't do it enough justice. It's a beautiful thing. Please go look into it more. Let's move on to some of the philosophies. Uh, because they're kind of all over the place. Um, if we want to just talk about the Greek philosophy philosophies, you have Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates all wrote about um, death. And they all wrote differently. Um, they all have different opinions. But each one addresses in a specific like writing piece death. Uh, I don't remember them off the top of my head. I apologize. I will try to remember to put it in the show notes. That I believe Aristotle... Socrates and Plato both had individual opinions on, and they wrote, um, I think Socrates or Plato wrote the Alphiud. No, Socrates wrote uh, Apologies. I might have all these wrong. I, I apologize. But they each wrote their own piece on it, specifically like their own writing piece on it. Aristotle was kind of just like, it's, it's a finite thing. People die. I'm not going to try to make it better for anyone. It just happens from what I remember. Socrates and Plato wrote a little bit more about 
immortality and the possibility of that, what happens to the soul. And those all got moved into other, you know, you have like Iamblichus who writes, uh, wrote specifically Iamblichus, you can go read um, on the vehicle of the soul. And so there, the individual teachings expand exponentially through all philosophy, not just Greek philosophy, all philosophies of is there an afterlife? Is there immortality? Is um, and now remember, a lot of these old school philosophers and the old philosophies do write about multiple bodies of health, like I've talked about. So it gets into a weird amalgamation of: Does anything happen when you die? Do you, does your body just rot? Are graves places of import? You know, what happens when there is no grave? Um, there's a lot. And then all philosophies kind of, almost every philosophical teacher in the history of philosophical teachers covers death in some way. Remember, I've talked before about how philosophy as a whole, I believe to be the original talks on self-awareness. And part of talking about self-awareness, we have to talk about what happens when you die. What do you believe what happens when you die? Because that really changes in the philosophical standpoint, how you live. And uh, do I want to, yeah, we'll, we'll jump into that one next, but I'll, I'll bring it up real quick. So like, if you talk about like the Egyptians, we've seen their reverence for death, right? And how there's the burial situation and Unfortunately, there's the hierarchy of who gets buried, who doesn't, and all these different things. So culturally, religiously, philosophically, death is always a major import. And there's different ways of, of thinking about it and different ways of going about it. And what happens afterwards is widespread and varied. That's why, you know, when we talk about the Greek philosophies or we talk about the Egyptian mysteries, even in like the North... Uh, Norse, you know, the pagan religions, death was in some ways commonly referred to as a release. So let's look at one where there's a specific idea of balance, and that's Taoism. In Taoism, death is believed to be the balance to life. Now, remember, in Taoism, it is possible by belief structure on how one lives to become an immortal, to be a physical immortal. That's a possibility in Taoism. So death being a balance, that balance piece to that idea of immortality gets very in-depth. And in Taoism, there's the realm of the gods. And it is possible to raise oneself as their soul or being into godhood. So a mortal can become a god. A mortal can also become an immortal, which is like a demigod. That's the way to think about that. But Taoism really deals with the idea of death being a balance. And there has to be balance. I've talked about this before. The universe is constantly seeking balance. How it goes about it is asymmetry. It always does it differently. It's never, it works with the primes. And that's how Taoism treats death. Specifically when one, a Taoist immortal is seeking immortality, 
They must have a death of something. There must be a balance. So all of the Taoist immortals had to have a vice. There was all Taoist immortals had their their one specific thing they could not live without. By live, I mean continue their mortal existence without this thing. If they if they lost this item or didn't intake one of the Taoist immortals was a drunk, and without the elixir of longevity or the the wine of life that Taoist immortal would die. There was a Taoist immortal of... The Taoist immortals in some ways were, were similar to the uh, sub-pantheon in Christianity and other religions where they have saints. Um, just, you know, saints are revered for being great at something or great or providing greatness of that belief structure. The Taoist immortals were great at something, but not always great people. Um there's some Taoist immortals who did terrible things, um, but they don't really, they weren't really seen as terrible. Interesting sidebar. If you want to go down that route and study it some, but specifically, you know, you would have a, a Taoist immortal of music that had to have a specific, um, I believe it was a flute. Uh, again, don't quote me on all this, but I believe they specifically had to have their flute with them and they would play that flute daily or they would no longer be immortal and could be killed. So, those are some of the ideas of what happens during death, what death is, doesn't matter, doesn't not matter. Well, this podcast is about self-awareness and mental health. And specifically, I talk about how the connotation of depression should be changed. And I really get into that in the depression episode. And what I think depression is overall from a philosophical standpoint of what philosophy teaches and that's, it's always taught about self-awareness. It's always taught about depressing things into the mind and that depression is a tool and awareness option of how we look about life. Death is the balance to life. Without life, there cannot be death. Without death, there cannot be a measurement of what we call life or living. So in that realm of things, we have to talk about suicide. We have to. Because when we talk about suicide in today's culture, again, it's another taboo topic. Don't talk about it. Leave it, leave it be. Don't get into it. You know, you could trigger someone. Well, these individuals are already thinking about it. I know because I did constantly. And to some extent, I still do. Like I said, I'm not actively suicidal. I'm not exactly passively suicidal anymore either. I'm in a weird state of, I understand my, I understand what I think suicide is and why I wanted to go about it and now don't. And it took the idea of understanding death in my own personal opinion, my own truth of death, my own systems of death, my, you know, when I, again, in the 14, first 14 episodes of the podcast, I talk about all these different things that make up reality and identity. I identify with death. I also identify with death and I believe the reality of death is something we need to understand in order to understand suicide. Because in my personal opinion, an individual who is contemplating suicide is contemplating their own death 
and the differentiation between someone who attempts or commits is someone who is either at a justification point for themselves personally or has no reason to believe that it doesn't, that, that it matters in any way or that living is a, a necessity or a, a want in any way. And everyone is different. And there are clinical issues, medical issues that may lead to suicide. I've talked before in the depression episode how that's its own thing. And that I don't speak on it. Everyone should seek help if in any way, at any time, if they feel necessary. These are all other topics. The medical world of major depressive disorder, which is what we commonly refer to as depression, could be chemical imbalances, could need medical intervention. It's, it's, everyone's different. When I speak of depression, I speak of a tool in which we use to look at the world. This is where my perspective on suicide comes from. My perspective on suicide, when I was actively suicidal or suicidal in general, not to say that I'm not in some ways, but that's really just down to an understanding now, that comes from a perspective or a translation, remember mental body, spiritual body, physical body, of understanding. I don't believe someone who is contemplating suicide is informed enough if they don't have a full understanding of what they define death as, what happens afterwards, and can, in their own words, explain it to someone else. So I think it's important for us not only to understand our own definition of, of death, but understand that others have different understandings of death. And that's why I went through some of the philosophical ideas, some of the, the religious ideas, some of just the general ideas of what death is. So in that same vein, we kind of have to do that with suicide because suicide has been kind of part of life from the onset. And we've seen writings about it in all scripture. All religious scripture has some comment on suicide. In philosophical writings, most have touched on what suicide is or why someone might contemplate suicide. Every culture has had their own take on suicide. And so I think it's important for us to understand the differentiations of those belief structures because suicide as a whole is a belief that there is no hope or that through suicide, something will occur or that it's the only option thereof. Those are the big three ways I explain the, remember everyone's mental faculties are different, but those three pieces are really catalyst points. So if we look at some of the belief structures in, in Christian communities, it's against God's will. Uh, it's a sin actually to, you know, it's taught that if, if one commits suicide, they'll go to hell 
because it's against God's will. Again, when you die, you're exalted and you go back to the Lord's home. So the Christian community teaches that. In Islam, Allah doesn't allow it. Allah does not allow suicide in Islam unless it's for the right, unless there is a right, which is reasoning. That's why you have suicide bombers. Um, who, and even that, if you look at like the actual scripture, it's kind of a, it's it's been twisted. It's not really how it works. But again, there's different translations, different understandings. In Buddhism, this is where I'm going to get into some of my beliefs here in a second. But in Buddhism, it's pointless. Because in Buddhism, we have that idea of reincarnation. So if you if you commit suicide, you're just starting over. You, just, you have to do all this again. Everything you've done in this life is throw it out the window. You got to do it all over again. So it's, it's a pointless idea to, to, you know, commit suicide because you're just going to be back to where you were and nothing will have changed. Um, but then we have, you know, if you look at cultural representation, death by suicide is a statement in some cultural representation. So we look at in the Japanese warring state periods, um, the Edo period and, and around what we, we commonly refer to it around the samurai age, but uh, you have an idea of, of seppuku and seppuku is an honorary death by suicide. It's to, to save honor of the lineage because everything's family based by one giving them their life to protect the family's rights, um, to regain honor to the family. So that's, what's known as an honorary suicide. Um, but also in, in Japanese culture, there's a place known as the suicide forest, which is where one would go to commit suicide. And there's even a caretaker of the forest that goes around and, and finds bodies and gets the authorities and they dispose of the body. Therefore that cultural belief though. So we have an understanding of seppuku carry that forward into modern society with the suicide forest. One would go to the suicide forest in order to not con uh, complicate things for their family or for society. It in Japanese culture, it's, it's very important to be respectful of the societal norms and society as a whole. That's why you can be very polite, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, like Samima-sen, Samima-sen is like, excuse me. And you pretty much say that, like, to be very polite of like, even if like, when you're entering the train and it's a busy day and like, you, you know, you're trying to just get on the train, but there's a ton of people, like, Samima-sen, and then you would, you know, or even if you like sneeze in public, you might say, or cough in public, you might say like, like, excuse me, I'm sorry. It's not really, I'm sorry, but it's like, excuse me. So there's a cultural idea behind it and a cultural normality that comes from the belief structures though. Shinto Buddhism, Buddhism as a whole, Zen Buddhism. To step into a different cultural respect or an ancient cultural respect, we have the Roman and Greek cultures where the idea on suicide was mixed. Um, it was touted as a way of, again, gaining honor back to the family or, um, as a transaction in some cases. So if, if, uh, in the Roman empire, 
if one's family was disgraced and like, you know, the emperor was going to seize your assets, the emperor would allow for the head of the family to commit suicide in order for the rest of the family to be spared ultimatum style. Um, so there were different mixed ideas in, in Greek culture. Uh, when you talk about, if we look at the Greek philosophies or even in some of the Greek mythology, that idea of a suicide was typically transactional. It was typically to get someone to spare someone else's life or to, so it was never suicide in Greek writing and in, in, in ancient historical writing in that sense, be it Roman or Greek, actually, I say transactional, but what I, what I'm getting at there is it was never in vain. It was never for no reason, always reason behind it. And I, I know it's a touchy subject. I do. Having known multiple people who have committed suicide and my, me, myself having contemplated it and attempted Suicides never for no reason. There's always reason. Why I got so heavily into talking about the Judaic community and how they deal with death in this episode is because there in and lies the problem when we speak about suicide. I can tell you there's always a reason the differentiation comes when we get into the ethics and morals of if those reasons are correct or not. If those reasons are reason enough, could there be help? And that perspective comes from those who are surviving the loss. It comes from those who are mourning. And the Judaic community is the only community I've been able to see that provides the support to the mourner while also revering the dead. Whereas in Western culture and in other, some belief structures, there isn't much to that idea. Specifically when we look at the Christian community or even deeper at the Catholic community, it's like a shameful thing to be if to be part of the family at a, a a funeral that was due to suicide is a shameful thing. It's shamed. There's no support to that family. I mean, yeah, I'm sure people support them because that's what community does, but it's a shameful idea. And I think the reason for that is because in these teachings, yes, life is supposed to be sacred and you're supposed to be living for something, a deity or a greater idea, but not living for that is like a, a shun to that system. So you're shunned therefore. but I can tell you there's always a reason. And yes, it's, it's tough. And no, I don't think people should have to commit suicide. I don't think they should have to have that as the only option. There's always more options. 
So that's where I'd like to get into my belief structure. And I don't think anyone should have to share my belief structure because it's not really the greatest ideology out there on how things actually work. Um, but I, I want people to understand there is reason. There's always reason. I know it doesn't always make sense. I know it's not, it might not even feel right to you. And yes, anger is usually the first thing people feel when they have to deal with it. I, the, one of my uncles who I'm named at my middle names and after committed suicide and there was anger on the family side. They felt anger towards what happened and he was disassociated. He disassociated himself from the family, just like I have. And, uh, people put a lot of ties towards me and this individual, but having also dealt with just people who were friends or, you know, acquaintances or knowing, having friends who've had people in their family commit suicide. It's different for me because one, I deal with death. I've always dealt with death. Well, I'm just one of those people, but it's also different for me because I, I get to see both sides. Like, I've always seen that like that person had a reason. I know they had a reason. It takes, I've never said part of my French on this podcast, but it, part of my French, it takes a fuck ton of reason and mental fortitude to actually commit suicide. People think just like, oh, they just pulled the trigger. Or, I can't believe they would just give up. I'm sorry, but you have no fucking clue how much mental anguish and mental thought and just the amount of thinking that person went through to get to that point. It, it's not easy. I've attempted suicide. It's not, it's not easy. It's not just this like, I'm just whimsically going to fucking do it. That's not how this comes about. There is so much thinking that goes into it. And a lot of that thinking is trying to talk yourself out of it. The moment it happens is the moment of Satori, of exaltation, of moksha. After that comes memento mori. And even before that, there was memento mori. A person committed suicide is going through, I, I can't explain it to you because it's so different for everyone. I can give you anecdotally where my mind went, which is self-worth feeling bad about like actually feeling bad. Like, Oh, there are going to be a couple people who are going to be pissed off about this and are mourning this. And then having that idea after my first attempt, I spent a, a really long time disassociating myself with everyone. So that when I did, when I was planning on committing suicide, they wouldn't have to feel that way. I've known other individuals who have gone through that process. My uncle went through that process. He disassociated himself with everyone else in the family. All the people in his life moved from place to place to place. In my eyes, so that, and from some things of the, what I remember talking to him, so people wouldn't feel bad. They wouldn't be angry. In some ways he went about so that people wouldn't even know it happened. He at the very end, he barely kept in touch and told people where he was so that he could just go about it is my understanding of it. And I was there too. I, I disassociated myself with everyone so that they wouldn't have to know or deal with it. And that's a very Japanese way of going about it. Cause 
that's why I studied seppuku. That's why I studied the suicide forest and all these different cultural ideas of it. Someone who's that ingrained into the idea that they're like it's what they want to do. There's reasons, and there's also a study of research into other other options. It's not like they just gave up. I get how someone could see it that way, and everyone has their own perspective and own own personal viewpoint on it. I'm trying to provide others the viewpoint from the other side. And no, no one wants to hear it in the beginning. Five years down the road, 10 years down the road, that's when I can typically have this conversation with someone who's suffered through a, a, a known person in their life committing suicide is, I assure you, that person had their reasons. And you might not understand them, but I assure you, they thought about you in some way. I assure you, if you are so grieving after the fact and you are so angry after the fact that you are important enough to that person that they thought about it, and it's not that they didn't think you were important enough to live, it's that the reasons outweighed that option. But they thought about you, just as you think about them. It happened. Unfortunately, whatever circumstances that were involved, there wasn't a balance. The only balance they could find was that option. And no, nothing I'm saying is going to make that right. And nothing I'm saying is supposed to make it feel better or make you feel better or make it better in any way. But I want you to understand. You kind of need to understand there is another side to this. And unfortunately, it's impossible to understand that side. That's part of the reason I say that your depression is your depression. And I can never understand it. And you'll never understand mine. You will never understand the mental state or depression that someone is in who is contemplating or committed suicide. You can't. I've been there. I've tried. I've attempted it. And I don't understand someone else's methodology, mentality, ideology, belief. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I can't. It's impossible for me to understand. I can only understand some of the facets that go along with the idea of, of committing an attempt or, or, or actually attempting. And I can tell you from that perspective, anecdotally, from myself and others that I've spoken to, There's reasons. I don't know what they are. I know what mine were, but mine are different than someone else's. So sharing mine is kind of pointless. I'm happy to do so if maybe that helps someone, but I don't think it helps the conversation because again, it's so, it's so individual, but there were reasons that I can say there's always reasons. I've never found a case in which there was no reason that it was just giving up. Yes, it's giving up in the end. That's the end result. But it wasn't just, a, it wasn't that negative connotation of giving up. It was a, I have no other choice but to give up. And again, we're left with those who have to mourn. And that's the tough spot. And that's the spot I really don't do very well with. If you're mourning death, if you're going through grief, I have no way of helping you. Other than to ask, 
that you hold to whatever belief structure you have in place right now. If you're angry, you get to be angry. If you're sad, you get to be sad. The way everyone deals with death is part of your depression. It's your understanding of death. It's how you go through the emotional states, the grievances, the, the language you're going to use around it, whatever education you have on it. It's all those things that build your reality. Death is part of your reality, your understanding thereof. Your identity is part of how you work with death because everyone has been part of it in some way. That being said, here's what changed my mind from going from actively suicidal or going from, I won't get into all the history of it, but going from being a suicidal person, having active tendencies and passive tendencies, then slowly into more passive and then into someone who, unless something drastically changes, I have no want for committing suicide because I have an amalgamation of beliefs, but I have an understanding of death and what happens thereof, or at least my own personal understanding of death, which is why I think everyone needs to define what they believe about death, which is kind of what this culmination of this episode is all about. What stops me from committing suicide is because like the Buddhists, I believe it's pointless. I do believe in reincarnation. I don't have religious beliefs. I simply believe, or I have no, organ again, I talk about organized religion. I guess you could consider my belief structures a religion. I'm not going to turn it into one, and I don't think you should join me in it anyway. But I believe, personally, that reincarnation is a thing. I believe I've seen enough anecdotal evidence of it to say, yeah, there is a strong support structure for reincarnation. Um, I'm terrible at quoting names sometimes when I think about it. And I'll have to remember to do this in the future. But there was an individual who wrote a book about um, past life remembrance and specifically with children all throughout the world who had um, scars that became well, birthmarks on their body, again, born. And this is all like pre-teenage into teenage years that this individual went and spoke to these children who had these very like specific birthmarks, like very large or in specific locations. And each one of them spoke about remembering a past life in which that birthmark correlated to the way they died. That is one of many other anecdotal pieces of evidence that tells me, yeah, there's some sort of thing involved with this whole reincarnation thing. Just go look at Taoism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Judaism to an extent, because the dead go to where the ancestors are. And it is possible if you read the Quran a certain way that they could all come back. Christianity with all going to it. Like that's just some, that's reincarnation is to go hang out in heaven. It's another life. There's always a commonality talk and paganism. I didn't get into paganism and their views on death because they're super varied, but death is just another part of the cycle. Like it is with some of the other ones we talked about, but in paganism, there's the pantheonic paganisms where there's a pantheon and there's always a God of death, an angel of death, there's a, a, a spiritual being that deals with death, 
but there's also the idea of the three bodies of the, the body, the mind, and the, and the spirit or other. And inside of that is always the possibility that the, there is a separation of consciousness and soul. We kind of use those words interchangeably, but that's not really how in paganism we think about it because in paganism, like in spiritual Shinto Buddhism, everything has a spirit or there are the world of the spirits or even someone like Paracelsus who talks about how in alchemy, alchemical processes there or H.P. Blavatsky writes about how everything has a, a deva or there's a spirit to everything. And it's a, a different realm that we can't exactly interact with unless we're in that realm. There's a separation between consciousness and soul. The soul is, like physics, an energy body. So when you talk about the other, the upper health structure, that's the soul. And soul is energy, and thus energy can only be transferred or transformed. It can never be destroyed. That's the idea of soul. So I believe anecdotally, there's enough evidence to say, yeah, it's possible to have reincarnation. Reincarnation is when a new, a new life of some way, specifically in materium, is being provided to a soul and consciousness is re-instructed and being given power over that connection of soul to body. This is the translation point where consciousness is now the mind body and like the physical body, the mind body can die, but the soul itself will always return, return to what some people call source or the kami, the spirit world, the other, the nether world, to heaven, to hell. I don't care where you want to call it. goes to that someplace. It sleeps. It gets ready. It does all sorts of things. And this is where I differ on some cases because I believe that, yeah, that's probably what happens. Physical body dies. There is no, there's now nothing to translate. So the consciousness itself can die and then the soul will return. When the consciousness relinquishes control over the translation between the soul and the body, Archaeus and Animaeus, then the soul goes and does whatever the soul's going to do. I don't know that part. I haven't really figured it out yet. I do believe that it's nefarious. I believe I've seen enough evidence to say that, yeah, aliens probably do exist. There's clearly been higher consciousnesses or what would then be considered a higher power of soul. We talk about angels. We talk about devas. We talk about spirits. We talk about gods. Human history has been doing this forever. Or just a higher level of intelligence of consciousness. And I've talked about before how I think humans are crazy there's some psychosis that we consider ourselves intelligent by our own measurements. That's just weird to me. So I believe that, yes, it's absolutely possible to reincarnate and that there is these three health bodies. There's maybe more in Kabbalistic belief structures. There's 32 chakra points, not just seven whole big world out there. I hope to get into in this podcast to just help people understand how much other ideology, other ways of thinking, other thought processes, philosophical ideas are out there. Here's mine in kind of a nutshell. Reincarnation, absolutely possible. Physical body, not ours, just a physical thing we've been given control over, which has created a consciousness. 
I am the consciousness known as Phil that has created the Taming Hindrances podcast and does all this long rambling that some people listen to. And upon death of the mortal body, the energetic body, or what produces some sort of soul energy, will leave it. And when that happens, the consciousness that is controlling this will rest and that there is an imprint between the two. The consciousness travels with the soul and then will go at rest. And the reason that happens is because someone is harnessing whatever energetic form that that creates. I believe nefariously some other thing, be it a God consciousness, a sun somewhere, a solar body somewhere, exo, exo in some way or side reel in some way, Something greater than what just humanity is either created us or we're here for a reason. And that reason is nefarious that by living and through our suffering, that is the mortal coil, the mortal side of life, the physical material side of life, the material side of life, our consciousness or our souls. I haven't defined this specific point yet because I'm still looking into it harvest or create or generate some sort of energy that is valuable in some way to this other higher intelligence or power or structure or being or whatever the hell you want to call it. So we are important by that nature. And it is nefarious. I believe that this is seen in the Egyptian cultures and some of the Greek cultures. When we build these temples of reverence to these these giant pantheons of large creatures, structures, or individuals, then some way they harvested something from us. And I believe it's in a different field of view that we haven't gotten to yet, known as where the souls may live and the consciousness gets imprinted. And thus we have things like past life regression and old souls, quote unquote. So that's what I believe. I also believe that I am tired of it. And thus, just like Buddhism thinks that it's pointless to commit suicide, I don't because then I would have to go through all of this again. And I am so tired of the process. I don't want to do this again. I don't want to reincarnate again, but I don't believe that by going through some karmic process every time in a new life, that somehow I'm going to ascend into some other thing. No, I'm looking for the way out of, I want to stop reincarnation. That belief structure is literally what stopped me from committing physical suicide in this life is that I'm so fed up with the system. I don't want to play the game anymore. I don't want to be a part of the system. So I have to study and research and find a way to get out of it. And that requires a lot of work into learning about stoicism, learning about Buddhism, Hinduism, Shintoism, Zen Buddhism, Chan Buddhism, the differences thereof, the beliefs of the Chinese people, the beliefs of the Japanese people, Jainism from the Indian beliefs of, and how the whole con, the whole country of India has this wealth of knowledge into Ayurvedic medicine and the differentiation of when we come a little bit farther and we talk about the alchemical processes and the, those who studied alchemy and the three health bodies and the differentiation of soul and consciousness and mind and physical form and Christianity and Islam and 
Judaism, who all be, make up the Abrahamic religions and the way they differently deciphered all of these different teachings and, and historical events and the, the philo philosophical, the Greek teachers, the, the Romans, the all of it. I can go on and on and on and on, all of it. Taoism and my pagan belief structures because I come from a pagan background. A lot of my genetical code comes from North Germanic people. And thus, my ancestors were probably pagans. So, it's a lifelong study of life that is required so that I don't have to go through another life. And the only way to accomplish it at this point is to somehow find out about immortality in this life so that I can go on long enough so I don't have to do it next life. That's my belief structure when it comes to death. Yours is going to be different and everyone else is going to be different from that. So like other things I've spoken about, I don't think it's a great idea to give up our understanding of death and allow it to be defined by someone else. Nor do I think it's a great idea to define someone else's death by your belief structures. You get to, you're absolutely allowed to, but I think it's important to understand that someone else's death was their death. But your mourning, your grievance is yours. And you are fully in control and allowed to do whatever you want with that. And that's why I speak in reverence of the Judaic understanding of death and how they treat death because the dead body That's, that's the dead body of the person who died. And it is its own holy thing. And the people mourning are their own holy thing. And although these two things are connected, the living and the dead, it's treated separately. It's two different things. The living are the living and the dead are the dead. Death is death. Living is living. They can't exist without each other. But the measurement structure, the, the, the emotions, the feelings, all of the things that are known as humanity is what's in between. So I've talked about duality before on the podcast and how it's really a triality. The duality is death and living, death and life. We measure them by themselves. Even at a biological standpoint, a scientific standpoint, you have things that are living, they're biologically alive, they're doing action, they're in the human system producing ATP and moving and cells are multiplying, it's life, and there's death, things that aren't doing that, or we're, do, we're doing that and then aren't doing that anymore, live to die, you have to die to live. In that same vein, what's the triality? The triality here, because we are a species is humanity. We are the measuring point. Humanity is the measuring point of life and death. Like our psychosis of thinking we are intelligent, we get to define it and create it on our own. We, though, are not in a full understanding of its definition. And thus, we don't necessarily have a full picture, and it may change. 
and choices make change and change makes perspective. So we all get to have our own. And that goes in hand in hand with death and living those who commit suicide and those who mourn them. They are connected but separate. So I ask you, as I typically do, to take this and go think about what do you believe in when it comes to death? What practices resonate with you when it comes to when someone dies or how someone dies or, you know, what are your morals and ethics around death? You know, what do you, you know, consider in, because of, you know, the Norse religion and and Vikings are becoming pretty popular nowadays. What's a good death to you? What's a bad death to you? What do you think happens after death? Where do you go after death? What is there a separation between death and life? What do you believe about all these things? How do you reconcile death? How do you think about it? Do you think about it? How often is it important to you? Is it just a, another topic to you? It's, it's a good idea to step back and take some time to get a good understanding of what death is to you because that will allow you to understand someone else may have a different understanding of that and that's okay you get to have yours. And like I've talked about before, all the other topics I've talked about, you don't have to, that's yours. Don't give it to anyone else. You can certainly incorporate things other people might teach you. Your understanding of death is yours. Someone else's understanding of death is theirs. And they can clash. That happens. As long as you have a strong understanding of your own, when it comes to death, then you can have the conversations and then you can be a part of the living process because to live is to understand death because then you will understand how to live. That's as simple as I can make it and as complicated as I can make it at the same time because that's what alchemists like to do sometimes. That's what Zen likes to do all the time. Understanding death is knowing how to live. Knowing how to live is not necessarily Knowing how to die. Maybe die well. But understanding death teaches you how to live. So go contemplate death a little bit. Just not too much. I'll see you on the next one. Thanks for listening. Come check us out at taminghindrances.com for show notes, links, resources, and more. Also, Don't forget to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or your preferred platform. If you leave us a spiffy review, we might just mention it on the show. Now go be awesome. And just remember to breathe.